Who talks to you? Them, Sally replied, pointing to Liz and Kate. They told me not to be afraid. She looked Patrick in the eye and gave a slight smile. I'm not alone. Just as quickly as her lucid moment came, it vanished. The blankness returned to her eyes and her smile faded into an emotionless expression. Welcome to the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, with your hosts, Max, Liz, and Nigel. This podcast is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And I'm your narrator, Denny Brownlee. By the way, as you listen to this episode from the audiobook The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, keep in mind you can download your very own copy of it by visiting audible.com. That's www.audible.com. And you'll find the entire collection of Jenny L. Cody's Epic Order of the Seven books by going to her website, epicorderoftheseven.com. On today's episode, we'll be digging deep and planting a few seeds, as we'll bring you Chapter 60 of The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, which includes a trip to Philadelphia for some by way of that incredible transporter, the Iamosphere. Later in Jenny's corner, Miss Jenny will tell us all about how she came up with this brilliant time-traveling device, and we may even get a visitor here in the studio today straight from the Iamosphere. Uh, but before we uh, plant seeds or travel through time, first... Let's welcome your hosts. Joining us all the way from, uh... From the kitchen, right down the hall from this studio. And the pantry located adjacent to said kitchen. Yeah, uh, here's Max and Nigel. Uh, Nigel, why were you in the pantry? Aye, I'll answer that in Mosey's own words. <laughs> I say, old chap, I be taking the biscuit. At first, old boy, that's not even how the saying goes. Uh, Nigel, why were you in the pantry? Now, see here, I don't appreciate the implication. Hey, he were nibbling on them wee little fishy crackers. I most certainly was not. Then what were you doing? Well, it just so happens that a certain human, who shall go nameless, hmm, must be me, I go nameless every week, dripped a small amount of sticky sweet maple syrup on the floor. Now, I was merely removing those drippings to guard against a most certain infestation of sugar ants that the said drippings would have perpetrated. So you licked up the maple syrup drips in a uh, noble, self-sacrificing manner to protect us all from a certain invasion of uh, sugar ants. Indeed, and uh, you're welcome. Was it good? I'm sorry, what? The maple syrup. Was it good? Now, see here, old chap, the uh, scrumptious, mouth-watering delectability of that sugary, sweet nectar of the trees is really quite irrelevant. Uh -huh. uh, my main objective was to cleanse the floor of that luscious, lip-smacking, sugary goodness for the sake of us all. How noble of you. <laughs> well, I only wish I could have done more. Yeah, I'll bet. Uh, but as a small token of our appreciation for your selfless actions, uh, I'll be sure to leave you a little thimbleful of the uh, sweet nectar of the maple tree in your newsroom. <laughs> I say, that would be most generous. Oh, brother. Uh, where's Liz then? Well, she'll be here soon, but first I have a little surprise. For I hold in my hand a sealed envelope, and not just any seal, it's the seal of the Epic Order of the Seven. And you know what that means. <laughs> it means you better know what you're doing, lad. 
for that bad boy will open up the Iamosphere. Exactly. And again, later in Jenny's Corner, we'll find out all about the Iamosphere and where Jenny got such a cool idea for transporting you epic animals. And it looks like Nigel's already a step ahead of me uh, trying to open the seal. What'd you do? Drip maple syrup on it? I know, right? Um, I say, here we go. Hello, little ones. And uh, one big one. Ah, uh, Gilliman, what a grand surprise then. Indeed. Uh, so good to see you, old chap. And you as well. Uh, but I'm afraid I can't stay. I just wanted to stop by uh, with a gift for Liz. Uh, well, she aren't here, lad. Which is fine. I wanted to surprise her, so uh, here it is. I say, interesting package. Uh, I dare say it's ancient. That is a fine observation, Nigel. Indeed it is uh, uh, very ancient. Uh, but perhaps Liz will figure out its origins. Or you could just tell us. <laughs> uh, well, that would spoil the surprise, Max. And I know how much Liz enjoys solving a good mystery. I say, eh, brilliant. You know her well, Gilliman. <laughs> I do. Uh, but, gentlemen, I really must be going. I'm attending a wedding 812 years ago, and I don't want to be late. Uh, if it be 800 years ago, aren't you already a wee bit late, lad? Huh, not with the eye atmosphere. I say, uh, uh, ready, old chap? Uh, ready, Nigel. Well, then, I say, here we go. <laughs> I love all that wind and whooshing. <laughs> that iamosphere never gets old. And uh, neither do we, old chap. <laughs> uh, but uh, as we ponder this mystifying package... And wait for Liz to get here. Uh, right. Uh, I say, announcer chap, uh, be a good fellow and uh, bring us our next chapter. What? Assuming you mean the announcer who shall go nameless? Sure, Nigel. I live to serve. Chapter 60 to Philadelphia. Williamsburg, August 6th, 1774. Things moved quickly through Virginia following the day of fasting, humiliation, and prayer. Churches collected food and supplies to send to weary Boston. Dissenting pastors and even parish rectors preached stirring sermons on liberty. Taverns filled with the sounds of toasts and liberty songs and effigies of General Gage were burned as citizens railed against the British lion. Patriotic fervor was roused against the coercive acts, or the intolerable acts, as they were now called by the colonists. The Virginia Committee of Correspondence called for an intercolonial congress, and by June, letters of approval were pouring in from sister colonies with sentiments such as those from the Philadelphia Committee that all America look up to Virginia, to take the lead on the present occasion. Counties across Virginia mobilized to send representatives to attend an extra-legal convention on August 1st in Williamsburg. Lord Dunmore had departed the city in mid-July to take personal command of the war with the Indians out on the frontier. Calling up the frontier militia commanders like Andrew and Charles Lewis to meet him out west, the governor planned to call the dissolved Burgesses back in session in November after he had secured a peace treaty with the Indians and secured popularity for himself by being a hero. Patrick Henry, George Washington, and Andrew Lewis were in favor of Dunmore's move 
as they each had land interests on the frontier of Ohio and Kentucky. Patrick Henry's sister, Anne, who was married to Colonel William Christian, and their friends Samuel and Elizabeth Crowley, lived in that hazardous region, so Patrick also had a personal interest in keeping the Indian threat at bay. But with Lord Dunmore gone, the ex-Burgesses could meet freely in Williamsburg and not at the Raleigh Tavern. While the cat was away, the mice would play, right inside the Capitol building while the portraits of King George and Queen Charlotte looked on. On July 20th, in Hanover County, the freeholders gathered on the steps of Hanover Courthouse to select Patrick Henry and his half-brother John Syme, Jr. to attend the extra-legal convention in Williamsburg. They read an eloquent statement and list of instructions for the men as they represented the people of Hanover. The instructions indicated they were in no position to judge Boston in regard to the tea incident. But this we know, that the Parliament, by their proceedings, have made us and all North America parties in the present dispute, and deeply interested in the event of it, insomuch that if our sister colony of Massachusetts Bay is enslaved, we cannot long remain free. We will never be taxed but by our own representatives. We judge it conducive to the interests of America that a general congress of deputies from all the colonies be held in order to form a plan for guarding the claims of the colonists and their constitutional rights. United we stand, divided we fall. More than 100 men, minus the frontier delegates, gathered in Williamsburg on August 1st for the First Virginia Convention. They debated about what they should do in regard to halting imports from and exports to Great Britain. They agreed to cancel the importation of slaves, something Patrick Henry had pressed for. They also passed resolutions denying the import of British goods and especially banning the consumption of British tea. Some sought to gain sympathy from the British people with correspondence, while the more militant Patrick Henry and the Lees sought a clear demonstration of strength in response to the intolerable acts. But after a week, they did at least agree on seven delegates to send to the Congress in Philadelphia to find a solution with the other colonies. Speaker Peyton Randolph, Richard Henry Lee, George Washington, Patrick Henry, Richard Bland, Benjamin Harrison, and Edmund Pendleton. While there was disagreement between these liberals and conservatives, they were the most brilliant, experienced minds Virginia had to offer. The Virginia Convention instructed them to express their loyalty to the king, to express concern for the unconstitutional measures against Massachusetts, to put an end to arbitrary taxation, and to offer aid to the people of Boston. George Washington, who rarely spoke in public, offered up an inspiring pledge to the hearty cheers of the men of the convention. I will raise 1,000 men, subsist them at my own expense, and march myself at their head to the relief of Boston. When the convention adjourned, George Washington walked up to Patrick Henry as the representatives exited the Capitol. Mr. Henry, why don't you come to Mount Vernon on your way north? We'll ride to Philadelphia together. Nothing would please me more, Colonel, Patrick answered with a broad smile and a handshake. Splendid. Martha and I will look forward to hosting you, Washington answered. I'll invite Mr. Mason to join us from Gunston Hall. 
We will have much to discuss by then, I am sure. I have no doubt. I look forward to it, Patrick replied, spotting Edmund Pendleton walking toward them. George Washington tightened his lip. Mr. Pendleton will also be joining us at Mount Vernon, and mentioned riding with you from Scotchtown. I know you two don't see eye to eye on a great many things. It could make for a tense journey. I will keep a bridle for my mouth as well as for my horse when riding with Mr. Pendleton, Patrick said with a wry smile, patting Ms. P. United we stand, divided we fall. Including falling from your horses, Ms. P. whinnied. Scotchtown, August 29, 1774 Liz and Kate sat on the brick floor of Sally's bedroom, watching Patrick and Sally. He was gently brushing her long hair with the silver brush he had given her that first Christmas so long ago. He recounted happy stories and memories of their life together, but Sally didn't respond. They sat there for a few minutes in silence, as Patrick continued to brush her hair. They talked to me, Sally suddenly muttered in a faint whisper, staring at the animals. Who, my love? Patrick answered eagerly. Sally rarely said anything now, so he grew animated to hear her speak. He put two fingers under her chin to lift her eyes to his, searching her face for signs of his Sally. Who talks to you? them, Sally replied, pointing to Liz and Kate. They told me not to be afraid. She looked Patrick in the eye and gave a slight smile. I'm not alone. Just as quickly as her lucid moment came, it vanished. The blankness returned to her eyes and her smile faded into an emotionless expression. Patrick glanced over at Liz and Kate. A lump grew in his throat. He clenched his jaw against such a mad thought from his mentally lost wife. How he wanted to believe her. Suddenly, the story of Balaam's talking donkey filled his mind. If a donkey talked to a human, why not a dog or a cat? Tears quickened in Patrick's eyes, and he wore a sad smile. He kissed the top of Sally's head and wrapped his arms around her. That's right, my love. You are not alone, he said, as his voice cracked with emotion. He set the brush down on the table and cleared his throat. <clears throat> I'll be back soon. Liz's eyes brimmed with tears as Patrick walked over to pet her and Kate before he left the room. It was time for him to mount Ms. P., and ride to Philadelphia. Thank you, little ones. Take care of my girl, he whispered in a broken voice. He gave one last glance at Sally, who sat quietly in the chair by her bed, now gazing up to the window as her children ran past outside. Patrick put on his hat and left the room. Boston, September 1st, 1774. Looks like General Gage might be thinking differently about these patriots, no? Max pointed out with a stout grin. He and Clarie watched the British redcoats stand their ground 
as the Massachusetts Minutemen dispersed without violence. General Gage had ordered seizure of the military stores and gunpowder from the arsenal in Boston, and thousands of militia troops had marched on the town, but their leaders had urged calm. No incident took place. Yes, the rumors in London of American cowardice led the British to think that the presence of their famed Redcoat Army would effortlessly put a stop to any rebellion, Clarice smiled. She was in the form of a militia soldier. They believed that with a few regiments, the Redcoats could advance from one end of America to the other, and at the first sound of English muskets, the Americans would run for their lives. But that ain't the case now, is it? Max growled, wagging his tail. These Minutemen showed them that the American laddies won't back down from a fight. Clarice's smile faded, and she furrowed her brow, rubbing Max on the scruff of his neck. And when they won't back off from a fight, patriot blood will be spilled. But that is the price of liberty. Max turned and looked at Clarice with grave concern. When's it going to start, Les? And where? Soon, out on the frontier. Lord Dunmore is leading two forces of militia to fight the Indians. He himself commands the Northern Army, with Colonel Adam Stephen as his first officer. Dunmore has assigned Colonel Andrew Lewis to command the Southern Army and to meet him at the mouth of the Kanawha River. From there, Dunmore has told them they will pursue and subdue the Indians north of the Ohio River. Max cocked his head in confusion. Indians? But I thought this coming fight were going to be with the British. It will be, Clarie answered, not offering up any explanation beyond that. She let go a heavy sigh, picking up her musket. She pulled out a piece of parchment with the Order of Seven Seal, ready to send Max through the Iamosphere. I've got to get going while you join Gilliman, Nigel, and Cato in Philadelphia. The enemy will try to break up the unity of the First Continental Congress. Gilliman will give you further instructions when you arrive. Philadelphia? But don't you need me on the frontier with those Virginia laddies? questioned Max. Not for this first battle, Max, Clarie answered, ready to break the seven seal to open the Iamosphere. Max frowned not understanding what this could mean. So where are you going then? As Clarie broke the seven seal, she exclaimed, to meet Colonel Andrew Lewis's southern army at a place called Point Pleasant. Well, the plot thickens and- Max, Nigel, uh, bonjour mes amis. I'm sorry I just arrived. Uh, I did listen to the podcast on the way here. Uh, what did I miss here in the studio? Uh, not that much less. You just missed a visit from Gilliman, from the Iamosphere. Oh, quel dommage! I would love to have seen Gilliman. Uh, well, do not fret, my pet, for he did leave you a very special package. Aye, uh, looks to be really old. Hmm, how curious. What is it? Well, he didn't say, only that it was for you to figure out. Nah, he knows me so well. I do love a good mystery. In fact, one of those great mysteries involves the Iamosphere itself. So, as I study this ancient artifact, I should like to hear from Miss Jenny as to how she came up with such a clever and useful device. Hi, Les. Let's head to Jenny's corner by using... Uh, uh, just our pause, then. Uh, right. Uh, I say, Miss Jenny? 
Hey, Nigel. Uh, uh, greetings, Miss Jenny. Uh, today we'd like for you to dispel all the mystery regarding the I Amosphere. Uh, when did it come about, and how did it so infiltrate that fertile imagination of yours? Hmm? This came around in Book Three, The Prophet, the Shepherd, and the Star, when I needed a way to allow the animals to go to different points in time from the past, and it dawned on me. The maker, or God, and we've read about this, he is not bound by time. He lives outside of time. He operates outside of time. Time is something that we here on this planet Earth have limits on, but God has no limits. And so I believe it might have been actually C.S. Lewis who inspired this thought of God being outside of time, and he views past, present, future happening all at once. So it came to me, wow, what if I showed what that looked like, what the maker sees when he looks at the past, the present, and the future happening all at once? And with my 21st century brain of screens and watching moving images, the concept of the iamosphere came to me. And so it is this tall portal, you know, 70 stories high that has moving panels of time. And I love how I can take the animals there and they can see themselves even in scenes from the past, whether it be in Egypt or with Jesus or in the Sea of Galilee or wherever it might be, ancient Rome. And now up to the revolution, they can see these moments in time. And the complicating thing with this was two things. I could not allow future travel, and that's why those panels are dark. And even Gilliman himself is only allowed glimpses every now and then, very rarely, to see what those dark future panels reveal. The other challenge was I did not want to set up a scenario where the animals say they went back in time could affect history. And so the solution I came up with was when they use the iamosphere to revisit a past event, once they are in that scene after seven minutes of time, they forget that they're from current time and they act and do identically what they did before at that time. So it enables them not to mess up what they've done in the past while reliving the past. So that's for those occasions when they actually go physically back into that scene. The other neat thing with the iamosphere is using it as a tool to get from place to place. So when the animals needed to go over to Ireland from London, or anywhere in the world, they can go in real time through the iamosphere to get there. So it's a really fun tool. And of course, it's hilarious how Al is always afraid that not all of him is going to be there. He just can't wrap his little brain around the fact that he sees himself on the screen. <laughs> so the iamosphere is really divinely inspired by the maker. Ah, thank you, lass. I, the iamosphere, were a stroke of genius then. Indeed, brilliant. And uh, speaking of brilliant, let's see how our Lizette, brilliant, 
<laughs> is doing with her mysterious package. Hi, Kitty. What have you learned so far? Well, upon examination of the wrapping material, hmm, it seems to be even older than that of the Egyptian papyrus. In fact, I dare say, I am not sure even if this material still exists anymore. I will carefully unwrap the first layer. As the sun began to set, the fire cloud... I say, uh, do you hear something? At this point... Well, with me keen canine sense of hearing, of course I do. A sense of wonder. Uh, sounds like an lad. <laughs> I knew he were old, but come on! That's enough, wise guy. I say, dear girl, uh, tear off a few more leaves. As the sun began to set, the fire cloud <gasps> stopped. Oh! At this point, I think I know what this is. For I see there is a bag inside made of corn husks. We, <laughs> oui, a very familiar bag from a very long time ago. Les, you're not talking about your seed bag, are you? We, oui, Max. I say, I am afraid I am a bit in the dark here. Nigel, on the journey to Noah's Ark, when I first met Al and Max and Kate, and when Al. Uh, got into the catnip growing in my garden, and he got a, a little overstimulated. Uh, and he tore up the garden to shreds. It were a grand mess. We, uh, oui, Max, uh, uh, but that allowed me to leave the mess behind and join those traveling to the ark. But uh, I did manage to gather up the seeds from each plant and... Uh, you mean Elle did the gathering? <laughs> Listen. Liz asked me to help her last night to make up for what I did. She had me fill a sack of seeds from all the plants and flowers in her garden. I had to climb way up high on the sunflowers, too. Liz wanted samples from each and every plant here. Sure, and it took me most of the night, explained Al, yawning. <laughs> I uh, stand corrected. It was such a long time ago. And as such, uh, why do you suppose Gilliman decided to treat you to this uh, sentimental artifact? Uh, well, Gilliman did leave another epic order envelope for me. Uh, you want me to break the seal? And yes! yes! <laughs> I thought you might. Ready? Three, two, one. Hello again, everyone. Ah, Liz, I see you've found my special delivery. Oh, it is so good to see you, Gilliman, and we uh, oui, merci for this precious antique. Uh, well, there's more to it than that. Uh, do open the bag. I wonder if it still has the seeds from my garden. <gasps> oh, we oui, there they are. As oh, the sun began to set, Shh, the fire Lass, cloud uh, Listen, it be part of the story again. At this point, Liz began experiencing a sense of wonder that completely overwhelmed her. The maker had told Max that he would need to dance in order to cross the river. While it didn't make sense at the time, Liz now understood what the maker meant. He was faithful to provide a way for them in an unexpected way. And not only did he provide a way across the river, he provided a new, fast way to travel until they reached their final destination. Liz looked up at the fire cloud and smiled. You have given Max the answers he needed, and you have provided for all of us when I did not see any logical way. Merci. I never would have thought that dancing could be an answer to prayer. Liz paused, and then continued her solitary conversation with the fire cloud. 
I do not dance very well, monsieur, nor do I play very well. Uh, perhaps I am now willing to learn, no? Uh, please, teach me how. The fire cloud burned warmly, and Liz felt a stirring in her heart. Maybe this was a new beginning of her journey in faith as well. That was a day that truly changed my life forever. Indeed, uh, but I want you to also remember what led up to that day. Well, uh, the journey, following the fire cloud, of course. Ah, huh? and traveling with all your new friends then? We, ah, uh, and I was amazed at how much faith they put in the maker, especially you, Max. <laughs> well, lass, I were just wanting you to know the maker like I did. I see. Uh, so, metaphorically speaking, Max, uh, you were planting seeds. Aye, but I weren't speaking metaphorical. I were just using me mouth like I always do. <laughs> and uh, your actions too, mon ami. You showed me the love of the Maker until I wanted to know him that well. Hmm. So I suppose my journey of faith began with planting a tiny seed. Ah, Trebian, Liz. Uh, that's what I wanted to remind each of you. Helping others know our God simply requires showing them that they are loved and they are able. I say, good show, Gilliman. And uh, Liz, my pet, uh, just curious, uh, that bag didn't happen to include seeds for, oh, say, a, a sugar maple tree, you know, would it? <laughs> well, we, but uh, if you are thinking of planting them, uh, most maple trees require approximately 40 years of growth before they can produce the sap needed for the maple syrup. <laughs> well, my pet, uh, we do have an eye atmosphere. <laughs> we could make up that time rather quickly. <laughs> Nigel, you heard what Miss Jenny said. Those future panels are dark. Hey, so we'll not be going there, Mosey. Oh, uh, drat. Besides, did I not promise you a thimbleful in your newsroom? By Jove, you did indeed. And so, for maple syrup, I'll be Nigel P. Monaco in the newsroom. And so, much like the covering of my seeds, uh, that's a wrap. <laughs> yeah, that's never been done. Uh, anyway, join us next time as the Patriots will be converging on Philadelphia. Plus, a young eagle's fancy will turn to love and the notion of raising a young family of his own. So be sure and join us next time. See what I did there? I just, I just planted a few seeds for next time. Ah, well, ingenious, old boy. Hey, that were good. Oh, look at the century. Uh, I have to be going. Uh, so long, little ones, and uh, one big one. Uh, ready? Uh, three, two, one. Once again, the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And remember, you can download your very own copy of the audiobook, The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, by visiting audible.com. That's www.audible.com. And you can find the entire collection of Jenny L. Cody's Epic Order of the Seven books by going to her website, www.epicorderoftheseven.com. And I'm Denny Brownlee. Thank you for listening, and join us next time on the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast. Have a grandi! A bientôt, mes amis! Huzzah! And ta-ta! 
And always remember, you are loved and you are able.